That's the only other announcement I have for today. Uh, Let's get into Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to skip some of the flowery introduction and just jump right to the text in the interest of time this morning. Matthew chapters 8 and 9 follow the Sermon on the Mount. So we went through the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us what the kingdom of God and what kingdom life is like. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he shows us what kingdom life looks like in real life, okay? And so uh, there's an intentional structure to this narrative in chapters 8 and 9. Matthew gives us three miracle stories and then a teaching about discipleship. And then three miracle stories and a teaching about discipleship. And then today we'll be in three miracle stories and next week we'll, f- we'll conclude with a teaching about discipleship. So there's a 3-1, 3-1, 3-1 uh, narrative structure. And the reason that he does that is intentional because we're meant to understand the miracle stories through the lens of the teaching on discipleship that immediately follows them. So how do we interpret, how do we understand these stories? Well, it has something to do with the teaching on discipleship that immediately follows it. Uh, It's an intentional structuring. And this whole unit of of stories in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 are designed to teach us what it means to live like Jesus, to be like Christ. Uh, A lot of people read miracles in the New Testament and they say, well, sure, Jesus did all those miracles. He was God. I'm not God, so I can't pray for a sick person to be healed. I can't cast a demon out of somebody. I can't hear the Holy Spirit. I'm not God. Jesus was God. Well, that's not exactly a right way of reading it. Yes, Jesus was God. He was also a human, right? And all of us are supposed to live like Jesus, and these stories are teaching us how to be like Jesus. Christ. So there are three miracle stories, four miracles in total today. uh, Matthew chapter 9 verse 18. Let's read these stories through. Um, While he, that's Jesus, was saying these things to them. So he's, this is in the middle of a story. Last week we, we saw that Jesus was teaching his disciples and the disciples of John the Baptist and some of the Pharisees about new wine and new wine skins and, and what it means to follow Christ and all that stuff. And so while he was in the middle of saying those things, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, let's pause there for a minute, the flute players and the crowd were professional mourners. This was a very common practice in first century uh, Judaism to hire professional mourners to come and cry and wail and sing and play sad music while, when somebody died. So Jesus gets there, the professional mourners are out making a commotion. Verse 24, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went all through that district. 
That's the first miracle story. Second miracle story, Jesus heals two blind men. Verse 27, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Then the third miracle story, verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So we're going to look at these three miracle stories and the correct way to understand them has something to do with the discipleship teaching that follows them. We'll jump into that passage next week, but I wanna look at two quick verses that help us understand what these stories mean. The first is verse 27. When the blind men came to Jesus and they said, have mercy on us, son of David. And then in Matthew 9, 36, which is next week's passion, uh, passage when Jesus saw the crowds he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd so last week we saw mercy as hesed loving God-centered community and relationships with God and others this week we're going to see mercy as compassion and the question is what does Christian compassion look like what does Christian compassion look like? And, and so we'll look in these stories and Christian compassion looks like Jesus and we'll see what kind of compassion Jesus has in these stories. The first one that we'll see is that Jesus restores community. In the story of the woman who had been bleeding, the term discharge of blood means uterine bleeding. So she had been bleeding from her uterus for 12 years. And in the, the uh, traditional ritual laws and the, and the clean and unclean laws of ancient Israel and the Old Testament, a woman who was bleeding uh, like that was considered unclean. Every month when she came to her cycle for a period of time, she was considered unclean. Um, and it'd be interesting to go back in the Old Testament and study those laws and why, and we don't have time to get into that this morning. We'll summarize it to say this. Because she had been bleeding for 12 years, she had been considered unclean and defiled for 12 years, and for 12 years she was not able to go into the temple and be part of her people and worship her God together as the community of faith. So in healing her, Jesus not only restored her health, but he also restored her community. He restored her to, become, to be able to, to go into the temple, to be with her people, to be in the presence of her God, and to worship. Jesus restores community. He also restores life. When he healed that woman, he was on the way to raise a girl from the dead. And, and, and he did. He has power over death. And Christians, a lot of times, will talk about the life that Jesus gives us. It is a full life. It is an abundant life. It is a meaningful life. It is a purposeful life. Let's not forget that it is also an eternal life. Jesus has power over death. He raised this little girl from the dead. And Christian compassion must give eternal life or it is not Christian in its compassion. 
There are a lot of great uh, human services and, and organizations. There are a lot of great philanthropic uh, organizations out there that do all kinds of caring for the poor and the needy and all these things. But if they're not also bringing the gospel that brings eternal life, they're not, it's not really Christian. It's compassion and it's great, but it's not Christian compassion. One of the things that sets Christian compassion apart is eternal life that we offer in Christ and the healing that only Jesus can bring. So Jesus restores community, Jesus restores life, Jesus restores dignity. Uh, the, the ruler came and knelt before Jesus. He was a ruler, he was an important person, but he's humbling himself because his daughter had died and he's asking for help. Jesus restored his dignity by raising his daughter back to life. Uh, the woman who was bleeding, not only was she defiled and not able to go into worship in the temple, but she would have been considered unclean and Jesus in healing her removes her shame. He restores her dignity in her community. The two blind men that came to Jesus and asked to be healed, they were blind. They had no way of earning an income. They were forced to live on begging and handouts from others. And in healing them, Jesus not only restores their sight, but he also restores their dignity. Now they can work. Now they can earn their own living. Christian compassion restores dignity to human beings. Jesus also restores hope. These blind men, when they came to Jesus, they said, have mercy on us. And then they called him a really interesting name, Son of David. Why would they call him that name? The son of David was a title for the Messiah. So when they came to Jesus and they were saying, we're blind and we're calling Jesus son of David, what they were saying is, maybe this is God's Messiah. And why did that matter? Well, Isaiah chapter 35, verse five, tells us what happens when the Messiah comes. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. These blind men were not only coming for healing for their sight, they were also coming to say, we're blind, Jesus is doing miracles, if he is the Messiah, then our sight will be restored, and that means that God's plan to redeem and rescue the world is unfolding right in front of us. This was their hope in a Messiah, and in healing their hope, and Jesus said, do you believe I can do this for you? What He wasn't just saying, do, can you make yourself believe hard enough that magical things can happen? That's not what he was saying. When he said, do you believe I can do this? What he was saying is, do you believe that I am the Messiah that Isaiah promised? And they said, yes. And then they were healed, which proves that he is the Messiah, which restores their hope that God is going to rescue the world. So Jesus restores community, life, dignity, hope, and he also restores freedom. The man who was demon oppressed was not free. He was oppressed. We don't know what his demon oppression looked like. Matthew doesn't give us those details, but he was under enslavement to a demonic spirit and Jesus sets him free. Community, life, dignity, hope, and freedom. And in a, in a summary, we might say it like this, Jesus makes people whole. That's what he does. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus said, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And remember when we were preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, we said that word perfect doesn't mean you now, you now therefore can never make any mistakes ever again. 
Your morality has to be perfect, like God's is perfect. No, the word perfect means complete, whole, fulfilling its purpose, right? It's not like, it, it's, it's like, and we don't have just a few slices of an apple. We have a whole, complete apple. It's, like, it's the word that was used when a, a puppy would grow into a fully grown dog or a child would grow into a fully grown adult. Mature, complete, perfect. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's what Jesus does with these miracles. He makes people whole again. Christian compassion, what is it like? It's like this. Christian compassion restores wholeness to broken people. It's more than just a handout. It's more than just giving a hungry person uh, a bag of, from McDonald's and saying, have a great day, right? Christian compassion restores wholeness to broken people. I listened to uh, The World and Everything in It, a news podcast by a a Christian news organization called The World News Group. Uh, And they've been doing a series of stories on uh, compassion ministries. And so I just wanted to share this one with you a little bit. The the picture uh, up on the screen, this woman's name, let me get it right, is Adela Fellows. And I'll get to her story in just a minute. But she came through uh, a Christian ministry called Good Samaritan Rehabilitation. That's a ministry that is founded and run and operated by a church called The Altar. Um, And so let me just read a little bit of this story for you. It's Wednesday evening in Post Falls, Idaho. About 70 men, women, and children are gathered for a potluck and worship night. Chili, pot roast, green salad, mac and cheese, and brownies fill granite countertops. As the sun sinks lower, the guests walk downstairs to a basement packed with mismatched chairs. Kids sit on top of a bunk bed. Most of the men and women in the room have one experience in common. They or someone in their family have graduated from Good Samaritan Rehabilitation. The prayer and worship night feels more like a giant family reunion than a worship service. The meal is hosted at John Padula's house. Every week, they have 80 to 100 people at their home for a potluck. 14 men live with John Padula, his wife, and their four children. These men are either waiting to get into Good Samaritan's rehab program or they're transitioning back into real life after graduating. Padula says a lot of these guys have never been in a healthy family environment, ever. That's one thing that makes Good Samaritan different from many other addiction rehab facilities. Men and women who experience the program experience the loving accountability of a gospel-centered family for the first time in their lives. Tim Remington is the pastor of the church and the director of the ministry, and he says, without the family, you have a loss of purpose, a loss of identity, a loss of confidence, a loss of positivity, and a huge loss for Christ. But even though the gospel is the number one thing we give people, you can't just rehabilitate a person, send them out into the world again and say, now that you're rehabilitated, you have Christ. Many addicts come from divorced and dysfunctional homes. And that's why we decided that part of this program would be to show them what a gospel-centered home could look like. Yes, they can do all things through Christ that strengthens them. That's what scripture says, but they don't know how to live it because they've had no examples. So we put them back into families. The Good Samaritan Ministry has two homes for women and one for men. And then we get to Adela Fellow's story. She came to Good Samaritan around 10 years ago. When she was 12 years old, she started stealing uh, alcohol from her parents. At age 14, she was introduced to methamphetamines. 
and she was addicted on them until she was 32. She had her first daughter at age 15. Four abortions and three children later, her life continued a downward spiral. She eventually got in trouble with the law, ended up in the rehab center at Good Samaritan, and her life changed. She says this, for the first couple of days, I was just kind of out of it, sleeping, detoxing, sick. I spent a lot of time in the bathroom. And I remember being in in the bathroom on the floor because the floor was nice and cool. We followed a routine. We got up at six. We ate breakfast. We exercised. We read through Proverbs, worked on a Bible lesson, and did classes and chores. I had no idea how to even get up, brush my teeth, eat bread, make breakfast for the kids. I lost all that sense, all the sensible things that you do during the day. So it really brought routine back into my life, and I needed that. Through opportunities to study scripture, Adela Fellows heard and accepted the gospel. She met her husband through the program. They moved into their own home. She's been sober, and now she works as the secretary for the church that runs the ministry. Her life was completely restored. That is Christian compassion on display. So let's stop for a minute and think about what Christ does for us, and and I'm gonna have Stephanie come up and sing as we uh, accept the community, the life, the dignity, the hope, and the freedom that Jesus restores in us. So let's wrap all this up by asking what do we do with it? How do we become more like Jesus in our compassion? The man in that news story, John Padula, has 14 guys living with him and his family. Every week he has 80 to 100 people into his house for a potluck and a prayer and a worship night. That's compassion on display. God might not be calling all of us to that extent. He might call some of us to that, but he's calling all of us to become like Jesus. So how can we become like Jesus in our compassion? The first step is this, act like Jesus. I don't mean pretend to be like Jesus. I mean do what Jesus did. Act, do what Jesus did. All through these stories, Jesus steps into action to heal people, to restore people. Uh, Every week, uh, I ask the staff on Monday to spend a half an hour meditating on the scripture passage that's coming up for the next week, the next Sunday. And then in staff meeting, uh, we talk about what the Lord stirred up in their hearts and their perspectives on the passage, and super interesting. Uh, This week, Cheryl Gahan said, "The, the mercy in these stories is mercy moved into action. It goes beyond just words. That's exactly right. Last week we saw hesed or mercy in community. This week we see hesed or mercy or love in action. It goes beyond just words. See, there's a difference between feeling sorry for somebody and having mercy on them. Have mercy is a verb, not just a feeling. And there's a difference. James picks this up. James chapter 2 Verse 15, it says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
right? There's a difference between feeling sorry for somebody and wishing them well and actually having mercy on them to meet their needs. There's also a difference between virtue signaling and Christian compassion. 1 John 3.18 says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We live in a world where everybody likes to signal their virtue, that they're on board with the latest uh, compassion trends in our society. We love to post things on our social media page. We love to put bumper stickers on our car. We love to put signs in our yard. In this house, we believe this and this and this, right? And we love to, to show the world all the things that we believe, but, we, but a lot of people don't actually do anything to actually help people in need. There's a huge difference between virtue signaling and Christian compassion. Our compassion must move beyond words and headlines and slogans and yard signs. Our compassion must move into the realm of action where we actually step into people's lives and allow God to work through us as we share the love of Christ with them and meet their needs. So that's the first way to become like Jesus is to act like Jesus. The second way is to live by the Spirit. That's what Jesus did. He walked in step with the Spirit. He kept in tune with the Spirit. All of these stories were interruptions. As he was teaching, somebody came up and interrupted him. My daughter died. Can you raise her from the dead? As he's going to raise her from the dead, somebody interrupts him by touching his garment to be healed. Uh, as he, when he gets done with that, as he's leaving, blind men come to him and interrupt him on his way. And then the demon-oppressed man comes and interrupts the next things that he's doing. And Jesus saw these interruptions as opportunities to show mercy and restore dignity. Now, one of the things that convicted me when I was uh, studying this week is how do I respond when I'm interrupted? Do I see the interruption as an opportunity to show mercy? And I'm sitting at my computer doing this and my kids come up, dad, 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 what? Right? How do we respond when we're interrupted? Like Jesus? Are we annoyed? If we live in step with the Spirit, walk in step with the Spirit, listen to what God is saying, if we live in hesed and loving community with others, then God will open doors of opportunity to show compassion, to give people the love of Christ, to impact their lives, just like it happened with Jesus. There are three really powerful quotes that I wanna share with you. The first one is from missionary Jim Elliott. Uh, Gary shared his story a few weeks ago. I love this quote, wherever you are, be all there. Don't be thinking about the next thing and the next thing and what else do I need to do in my basement to get it ready because it's almost done and the baby's coming or, or, uh, or, oh, church is almost over and we gotta get to lunch so we can beat the Methodists so we can have our best table, like whatever it might be, you know, like, no, 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 just hold on. Wherever you are, be all there. Open your eyes, look at the people around you. Now when that quote is combined, with a quote from another famous person who's almost to be a full, soon, soon to be full-time pastor, Jesse Bariga, who says, your life is a ministry. Your life is a ministry. I, I wanna be in ministry. Congratulations, you're breathing. Yes, you are in ministry, right? Everywhere you go, at work, at school, at home, in your neighborhood, your life is a ministry. You live as a missionary and a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you bring these two quotes together, they are powerful. 
But a lot of us need to be challenged by this third quote from Pastor Lee Eklov. The very idea of doing hesed does not even cross the minds of many church attenders who are more interested in having their own needs met. Sometimes we're just thinking about what I need and what I need and what I want and what I get and my preferences and me, 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 and we have to get over that hump and say, here, here, look, I'm here to be in ministry. My life is a ministry. I'm all here. I'm here for Christ, and God will give you the opportunities to show and share the love of Jesus if we live by the Spirit. Uh, so act like Jesus, live by the Spirit. Number three, trust the Father. Twice in these miracle stories in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus mentions faith. Two times. Once in verse 22, after the woman touched his garment, Jesus turned around and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And then again in verse 29, the blind men come to him and, and ask him to heal. And he says, Do you believe I can do this? They say yes. And then he says in verse 29, He touched their eyes saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. So somehow, in some mysterious way that I will confess I don't fully understand all the time, but somehow, in some way, God's action at times corresponds to our faith. Now, God doesn't always depend on our faith. Sometimes God acts in spite of our lack of faith, right? But somehow, and in some way, and in some circumstances, God's action corresponds to our faith. Sometimes, God in his sovereignty chooses to limit his activity to the prayers and faith of his people. And we can't just take a rain check on, I don't know if I believe that, but God's powerful and he does whatever he wants anyway, so my prayers don't really make a difference. No, in some regard, over and over in the New Testament, multiple times, and this is one of them, people's faith played a role in God's action in their lives. Now remember, the word faith does not mean try really hard to make yourself believe something that you have no rational reason for believing could be true. When Jesus said, do you believe I could do this for you? He wasn't saying, try really hard to make yourself believe that magical things happen. That's not what faith means. Faith means trust. Trust the Father. If we're going to become like Jesus and our compassion, we must trust the Father and pray big, risky prayers. We have to be willing to, to risk disappointment in our prayers if God's answer is no or not yet. And I don't know about you, but a lot of the times, I'm scared to pray risky prayers. I just keep my prayers at a nice, safe level because if God doesn't answer the prayer the way I want him to, then that may, what, what, what does that do about my faith? What does that say about me? What does it say about God? Oh, no, no, I got all these questions. And so I just play it safe, keep my prayers on a nice, safe level. You know, oh, Lord, I'm praying for this sick person. Now, I know you can heal, but I know most of the time you don't. And so if it's your will in this rare, uh, special, amazing circumstance, if it's your will, would you please heal this person? But if you don't, I, I know that you don't always, and most of the time you don't, and so, and so if you choose not to, God, that's okay. You just do whatever, you do you, and, and we're gonna pray here, God, and, and, if it's, and we, we like put safety nets under all our prayers all the time, right? Or we'll, we'll tell somebody, I'll pray about that situation and then we walk away thankful that they didn't say, can we pray right now? Right? We need to be willing to take risks. 
to pray big, risky prayers because faith is not believing that God can or knowing that God will. Faith is praying big prayers and trusting God with the outcome, even if that outcome isn't what we expected or desired. Faith is trusting God. So act like Jesus, live by the Spirit, trust the Father, and the last one is this, expect resistance. Look at the reaction to Jesus' miracles, verse, Matthew 9, verses 33 and 34. When the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Resistance. When we begin to live like Jesus lived, to love others the way Jesus loved, when we go beyond virtue signaling and step into actual compassion on people's lives, we can expect resistance from those around us. I'm sure that many people would be critical of John Padula for hosting 14 men uh, who are either going into rehab or coming out of rehab in his house with his family. Are you crazy? What if, what if they steal from you? What if they hurt your kids? What if they do this? What if they do this? Right? If you had 100 people in your home next Wednesday, your neighbors would probably complain. Right? We can expect resistance when we begin to share the love of Christ and live in gospel-centered community with others. That's just part of the game. Remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Many times, resistance is the evidence that we are actually exactly where God wants us, doing exactly what God wants us to do. Sometimes we think, oh, this is really hard. Oh, people are upset with me. I must have stepped outside of God's will. But a lot of times, that resistance is the evidence that you're doing just what God called you to do. So Christian compassion restores wholeness to broken people. We can become like Jesus and that by acting like Jesus, living by the Spirit, trusting the Father, and expecting resistance. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son to restore wholeness to us, to forgive our sin, to overcome the power of death, to set us free from demonic oppression, from addiction, from sin and the power and the devastation that it wreaks in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would uh, convict us to acknowledge and admit that we are broken people and need your wholeness restored in us. But then I pray that you would call us to share that love, not only through community, but through action, through compassion. I pray that you would open doors of opportunity for each one of us uh, this week, next week, to show compassion on someone else. And there are a lot of different ways that we can do that. Lord, I, I feel like what you, uh, what is the biggest challenge for Lakeview Church in this, at this moment, is that we would be stirred by the Holy Spirit to pray big, risky prayers and trust you, whatever the outcome. Would you just stir that in us today? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.